0: I look at it as leverage. If, if I help a CEO at, or a leader who has 200 people in the organization, and that person can make some changes that uh, are important, it affects 200 people. Those people have families, and those people are affecting others.
1: Welcome to another episode of Everyday Leadership. And today I have the absolute pleasure of sitting down with someone who is a servant leader. He's a transformational coach, he's a business consultant, and he's someone who helps people to thrive, to learn how to thrive in a very complex and chaotic world that we are living. And that's something that we definitely need more and more these days. He's also a CEO of Bridge Business Transformation. He is an author, of the book Hand in the Shoulder, Fighting Freedom on the Confluence of Love and Career," I had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Grant Tate. How are you doing, sir?
0: Well, good morning. Happy to be here. So, so great to see you and uh, looking forward to this conversation.
1: One of the things I do outside of this is I'm not a public speaker. One of the talks I give is called Stepping Outside Your Conference, Cell." And I tend to focus on like three different questions. And when I was delving into some of your work, I looked at some of the questions that you tend to ask people, who I am, what am I called to do now? Who am I going to work with and get it done? And they reminded me of, of that talk. I was like, oh, okay, this is <laughs> this is quite interesting. Um, I want to see, because just when I had those questions, they came from a place of my experiences. So I'm curious to learn, how did you actually arrive at that, asking yourself who I am? What are you called to do now? And who am I going to work with?
0: Well, I, I guess my answer to that is I wrote a whole book about it, about me trying to discover me. Mm. Uh, that's that's really the theme of the book. And about a year ago, a publisher called and said, hey, I've seen some of your writing out there. Have you ever thought of writing a book? And I said, well, sure, everybody has. Uh, and so <laughs> then that uh, person and I had three different meetings, and I finally decided I didn't want to write the 50,000 and first business book because that's how many are published every year. Let's examine my experiences. And then I, that got reinforced because I asked a lot of my friends and contact to, you know, if I'm writing a book, what would you like to see? And they said, how did you get to where you are? And my first reaction was, well, why would anybody be interested? You know, I'm not a famous person out there. The reaction has been very interesting to me because people who look at this book that covers actually from my childhood to uh, ending up 20 years ago, people who look at it sort of find something for themselves. In other words, uh, there are business elements of the book. There's growing up and in a culture and then finding myself in the corporate world and trying to survive and thrive in that. And then uh, becoming disillusioned, crashing, and then working my way out of that again. And people finding lessons in it. And as a coach, one of the books I always hoped someone would write and thought about writing this one myself is I wanted many case studies, M-I-N-I case studies. Uh, something that I could say, here's a short story. Let's look for the lesson in this this story. And in a way, this book is that. It's uh, 107 or 8 individual small chapters, each of which is an episode in things I experienced. Let's go back to
1: the childhood, younger version of you. What would you say was your one or two or three key lessons that you kind of took away from that period of your lifetime?
0: I was a little kid in class. I graduated high school when I was 16. I was sort of struggling to, you know, how am I going to survive when I'm the smallest one? And I finally figured out that the way I survived was out thinking of oh, the, oh, the, my competition. I wasn't going to win in a wrestling match or a boxing match or whatever like that. So brawn, uh, physical strength was my, what my thing. So that taught me early that trying to understand the world and my environment and what was going on with people was a was key to survival. The other thing was, that this was something that I think was a struggle with me, is growing up, uh, I grew up in a family where the principles were strong. Good news. Great news! Great family to grow up in. My grandmother told me, "This is my father's mother." Uh, if you have a talent and you're not using it, it's a sin. She she went to a small country church, and uh, so that set the bar really high. And uh, reflecting back, and all of my competitive environment, my struggle to develop my career. I was chasing that dream to be the best. Did you know what talents you had? One of the things I say is I graduated high school with three marketable skills. I had uh, worked in a furniture store, which is some stories in the book about that experience. Uh, I had experience working with a lot of different people in that environment. And so I knew how to sell in a retail environment. I had uh, I had worked, I had uh, developed some drafting skills by taking classes in, in high school that I could work as a drafts person. And then I had also done some other, uh, some physical things. So I, I, I grew up with some, uh, some skills. So when I got to college, I had to work my way through college and found myself in my very first year in college, becoming an, a, an assistant t- to the teacher of the uh, drafting courses that we took in engineering. And uh, I graduated college with $100 in my pocket, which is quite different from kids today.
1: <laughs> so- You got no money in your pocket when you graduated this place. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that,
0: yeah, yeah that, that's, that's right. Lessons learned, I my family, and, and because we were, you know, good family, but, you know, middle class, i just felt i had to work to find my way and work meant supporting myself and doing my part in family
1: when you said support yourself and doing your part for the family was that also providing for the family or did you have that responsibility as well was that just solely
0: no uh, they the family was self-sufficient from that standpoint okay you know i guess the way i would look at it relative to what my grandmother said i was the goldest grandchild it was expected that i would set the standards for behavior and performance every day performance wow. for my generation which was a high expectation yes that's a lot that's <laughs> a lot of pressure <laughs> yeah yeah that's right that's right yeah yeah even yesterday i have a younger brother he's 10 years younger living in in texas and even yesterday We were talking about who carries that role in our larger family now. Who's the person who basically takes the lead from a standards and behavior, moral standpoint? All that was important. And uh, when I joined IBM, I found that their principles were totally consistent with mine. Respect for the individual was the number one value. And when I became a manager, uh, the person who appointed me sat me down and said, look, you know, this is what we expect. Treat your people with respect and care and help them grow and give them the respect. And and by the way, if you violate that, you won't make it here. (laughs) And uh, part of my disillusionment sort of extending on time, uh, disillusionment with the company was when I... thought they lost that value, which is a bigger story in itself.
1: It's a really important one, though, because it's interesting when I think about the period of current in right now, I think it was probably yesterday, I was looking at some of the the data stats around around the Great Resignation, the amount of, I think it was like, millions of people who left roles. And they're saying that actually what's happening right now with back to pre-pandemic levels of people back into jobs. But even though that's that's has happened, there are a lot of people who are very, very still intentional around, well, value alignment is really, really key. And if I'm in an organization where I've come into for one thing and they're no longer serving those values anymore, people are now willing to leave and go somewhere else, which is a strange thing because we are... In theory, depending on who you listen to, in the middle of a recession. Yeah, even with that and with that risk uncertainty around, people are still willing to move because of their values. And when you talk about what you went through with with IBM and you going in there having that value alignment and then having that disillusionment between both of them, I'm curious from a personal perspective, what was it that made you aware that there was a misalignment? Because you had a very successful career you're in a very in a thriving company so what would spark that that thought process
0: well there were some very specific things one is that uh i have some stories in the book about my encounter with the uh, ceo of ibm whose name is frank carey i have some unfavorable things to say about him in the book but i uh, those personal encounters said whoa uh the guy who's our leader doesn't share my values and the way he treated me and the way he treated the people that were around me specifically in a fairly big meeting on the site I was managing the other thing was that every year our company came uh, developed a salary plan and it was something that all the managers were oriented to uh, every year and it was, you know, based on the profitability and those sorts of things. So we had a year where the profit outlook was not good, and they were going to lower the rate of change of the the mayor uh, increases. And then that, so they sent us that orientation. But then they said, "But don't tell people that." And I'm going, "What? <laughs> you know, what do you mean, don't tell people that?" Uh, my response was, look, in my location, we stick to the truth and the values. I'm honest with the people that are in our organization. I'm telling them how what the real story is. And I suggest you so you, you change the you know, guidance to reflect that. And so it was an indication that that respect for the individual was not something that was being held in high esteem at that point. And so that that's just one of several signals I, I got at the, at the time. And I was in strategic planning at one point. I was in a strategy organization. I could see clouds on the horizon. And this was the time when I decided to take early retirement. And uh, said uh, I was offered a promotion and said, well, no, thank you. I'm going to take this early retirement then explore the world outside, which I did, yeah.
1: Did you get any, I guess, criticism of the right word or were people around you at that point in time like asking you what you do doing when you made that choice?
0: The interesting thing is that they my, uh, my contacts within IBM were not surprised because a lot of people were doing it. <laughs> But uh, I wanted to also uh, reflect on what you said about what's happening in the recession, and we, you know, the great they call it now—the great reshuffling. Uh, and and this—it's uh, a very interesting time because uh, one of the things I do in my work is watch trends, particularly in organization, uh, organization trends, and where we're headed. And of course, we've been looking at more flexible organization. Uh, team-based structures and that sort of thing when the re- recession hit it's it's as if everything we anticipated five years out all of a sudden were going to happen tomorrow more remote work small teams shuffling the whole organization and and that sort of thing and of course we let's create a, a difference in the workforce, because a lot of people still had to go to work and still were exposed. But then we had office people who could go to remote work. And my comment would be, yes, they're returning to the office, but they're not the same people returning to the office. We've recommended that companies have a formal reboarding process. We always talk about onboarding when people are hired, but if you're bringing your employees back to work after three years uh, to be in the office, they're not the same people. It's not the same company. And you need to rethink how do you bring, how do you reform the culture? How do you get people to work together, know each other when they've developed a whole different scheme of knowing each other, of working with each other? And the other thing that we found out early in the, in, the, in the pandemic was that it was challenging managers. A lot of the traditional hierarchical managers uh, just were struggling. And new managers, new leaders emerged because they were the ones who were able to adapt to the new, new environment. And so communications is key. Uh, we just finished a survey just yesterday with a scientific company, here and we're looking at all it's a whole whole series of questions and they did a wonderful job of adapting to the the pandemic they increased their communications they developed small teams and they when they brought people back to the office uh, created the meetings and the environment where people could then get to know each other and get to know the help now relate in a different way to their tasks.
1: was that with your help they were able to create that or was that something that they were already doing because that sounds very i want to say innovative so actually think about doing that and that's something a lot of companies are not doing so i'm curious as to what it was that actually made them think about doing that was that through the work the organization does with them
0: So in in looking at the results of the survey, I went back to 2016 when we did the first survey with this company. And at that time, if you look at favorability, they were about 54% favorable in the response to all the the questions. And people say, well, what's a good score? 66% and above. In the new survey, 100% favorable on the key questions now what what changed uh when we after we did the 2016 survey uh the ceo asked me to do the survey said hey we think we have a communications problem and i did the survey and came back and said guess what you have a communications problem and here's what it looks like (laughs) and i said uh okay uh he said what do we do and i said that you have a choice I can I can create a an expensive communications uh, process by which we bring everybody into a workshop and we talk about communications, or you can do morning huddles, and that won't cost you anything but fifteen minutes a day. (laughs) They created these morning meetings where basically you talk about here's what we got here are the main priorities for today. Here's uh, what we need to plan for the rest of the week, and uh, everybody who has has a, an issue, let let us know, and we'll we'll talk about those things. And basically, it gets everybody focused. And I it might just relate that to uh, pan, pandemic management. One of the things that uh, we ran into is what does the future look like? It's unpredictable, you know. Economy's bouncing around. We don't know where the pandemic's headed and so forth. And so, strategic planning ah, how can I do a strategic plan? But the successful companies said to their people, I don't know what that looks like out there, but here's what we're going to do this month. And so, that sense of direction is crucial. And so, the idea of that morning huddle was focus on the goals. People in the lab, people who are designing the experiments, people who are trying to get work done, here's what we have to do today. And then they created a a weekly meeting that said, looking at next week, here are the main priorities, and then they create a monthly meeting where it's a longer format where they can get into more detail. It takes a lot of discipline because people will tend to, to say, well, I'd rather do something else or... Uh, I'd rather talk about my personal problems or something, but you know, focus on what we're all trying to do together. So they created this communication scheme, and that's continued. So when the pandemic came up and they had to go, move to remote, they said, well, how do we adapt our communication scheme to this? And uh, they, they created uh, the appropriate meetings for that. And then when they decided to bring people back, They're adjusting what goes on. The theory is the rate of change for the company has to be uh, an indication of how often you require those checkpoint meetings. So the faster the rate of change, the more frequent your meeting and your management system has to meet. In other words, you have to adapt the management system to the rate of change. If you're running a steel company where you do, you know, 10 million pounds of steel uh, every six months, then sure, have your meeting every six months and say, we produce 10 million pounds of steel. But if you're in a high-tech environment, uh, particularly one where you're running experiments, so like they do, is next, year's, next week's uh, results count on what I learned, depend on what I learned this week. And so it's constantly changing.
1: How do you ensure you don't get caught in what I call meeting fatigue? <laughs> because I know you've been there where people have meetings for meeting's sake and there uh, you come out of there thinking that could have been an email. Like so how do you ensure that you actually utilize the time to be able to share oh, we did that last week. So this is the results. Here's what we're gonna do next week and it's very short sit sync and people actually get value from the meeting and they look forward to it as opposed to
0: another one. Need to know and focus. It takes, as I said, takes real discipline. And one of the things that this company is looking at now is that the weekly meetings evolved. When people came back, it was a lot of personal discussions. You know, it was like, "What have you been doing for three years?" and that sort of thing. (laughs) And now they're trying to readjust that to get more back to the so more more concrete elements of. What are our goals and objectives for the coming week?
1: I'm curious, what is your view on remote working, hybrid working, in-person working?
0: It takes both. And I, I, I can really relate this to distance education. Uh, one of the things that happened here, of course, and I think, you know, I, I'm not in detail, you know, all know, all of Europe and the UK, but uh, children had went to remote. And basically, the school system had said when they, they set up electronic learning, took the same pedagogy that they were using, same methods of teaching, and just did the same thing using Zoom or whatever. That You really have to say this is a different mode of learning, and let's th- adapt our learning process to this mode. And so the same relates to management and, and working together is, uh, you know, that the point you're talking about is, uh, you know, that made earlier. How do you keep from wasting time on video? Because it can drive you crazy if you're having this, you know, the same idea. I've got work to do. I don't have time to talk to you, you know, that sort of thing. So the balance is, is really crucial. So there's a, there's a company that called Axios here in America that that uh, sends newsletters primarily about politics and economics but they call it smart brevity. Here, here are the five things you need to know today and they they spend a lot of time about with these, with the newsletter saying here are the top five things and it's going to take you two minutes to read this And so I can go down those five things and say oh those now I know I can close the the app. Uh, But if I need to know more about what's happening in inflation today, I can click their link and I can dive into depth. But I know what they're saying today. For instance, this morning, uh, their newsletter had, here are five things about inflation that uh, are new news based on the latest indicators. That's interesting news. How long did I have to spend with that? Two minutes. (laughs) So... And keeping it crisp and what people need to know is crucial. And so people are asking the question, well, why do I need to see this? Or why do I need to hear this? Or why do I need to be in this meeting? And the, the format of the meeting or the communication needs to answer that question always. This is something you need to know.
1: Something in your to, which is ticking around my head, and it's that mechanism of The willingness to unlearn and relearn, unlearn the old ways of doing things and relearn the new ways of doing things in accordance to the fact that, like you said earlier on, your people have changed, your people have grown. It's been a three-year time period. And therefore, you need to be able to adapt to what's coming out from them into your styles. And I think that's where some of the friction comes from. Because some people are like, well, yeah, the pandemic happened, but it's a pandemic, so in three years, it's a blip. Like this is how we've done it for the last 20 years. So why are we going to then change and adapt new ways? We can easily go back to the old world. The old world feels more comfortable. I can, it feels, I'm in my element at that point in time. This new ways is different because I'm learning as I go along, it's very experimental. And that's where I think that friction happens with, especially with a lot of lot of leaders around understanding, do I do what my people want us to do? Which should become insane, but obviously not, because that's why the, way the work that we do, or do I just revert back to what I did previously?
0: Well, I, uh, one of the things that we, we spent a lot of time talking about this just yesterday is I've recommended to this company that where we did the survey, they need to work with individuals on their own self-development, mm. not plan some big thing where everybody has to get involved. And I think that's the key these days. Everybody is different. And so what we have to do to work with that person to try to help them fulfill their their dreams. And of course, the ultimate is that you have the set of all my my, uh, hopes and dreams and the set of the company's hopes and dreams have a strong overlap. They're not exactly the same. But if the company succeeds or my team succeeds, I succeed because this is what I'm interested in. We do personal assessments. And in those personal assessments, we find uh, one of the things we measure is how do people deal with knowledge? On, on one extreme, the vacuum cleaner for learning, that person who just wants to always go to all the classes, read everything, goes to the library to find something, but is going to find five other things in the process. And at the other end, the person who says, my experience is what counts. I just want to, you know, I'll look up something if I have to. But don't talk to me about that seminar. <laughs> so, and and so within that scheme and a group of people, you have that that spectrum. All those if those people are saying, "I want more self development," then there are a variety of reasons they can have it. But the answer to it is, let's work together and let's see what what we can help you do that can help you meet your own personal goals. If I say say to the team, "Come on together." Uh, one of the things IBM did when I was there, they developed a policy that said everybody needed forty hours a week, a year of training. And we had programmers, and by the way, the best programmers are ten times as efficient as the average. And they said, "What do you mean? I don't need to go to class. What are you going to teach me?" <laughs> now we might be able to teach them human relations or something like that, but. But the best instructor probably couldn't teach them more about how to do their work. They learn from each other. But the other thing I think is important is the growth mindset, the fact of uh, of learning. And people you can develop that attitude and approach in your team. And that is that everything we do together, everything you work on, every encounter is a learning opportunity. What can I learn from this? Even an argument. Or disagreement is a learning opportunity. And so trying to uh, look at things as an opportunity to develop my skills or learning more is is a critical uh, mindset to have in an organization. You know, mindset shift on your screen. It's like, that's what it's all about. How do you shift the mindset of people in your team to be growth-oriented, not fixed-oriented? Yeah. So... It's a
1: crucial one. It's one that's not easily done or created. But that they you just alluded to around having that individual approach and recognising that we're all we all look at life completely different. we're coming at it differently, we all come with different skill sets. That makes such a massive difference because then now you're no longer trying to create this big program and forcing everyone into it. You're actually tailoring the work to the individuals and allowing them to be able to meet them where they are and draw the best out of them. But i guess the argument that you get for that is yeah but that takes a lot more time and that might be a lot more it <laughs> might be more costly but then you're like well the other side of that is it might take some time in the short term the long-term gains from that however you can't measure because there's so much that comes out of it it's exponential so it's getting over that short-term hot time we of looking at things
0: absolutely and you know one of the in addition to what my grandmother told me, my high school principal told me, everybody has some good in them, it's up to you to find it. And, and, and I you know, I sincerely believe that. And when you're working with people, their skill set may not be exactly what you ask for on the job, but you've learned something about what they can do and their attitudes and their particular skills, then help them, get to the point where they can apply those. And that's the ultimate happiness, where I can do what I'm really good at and get reward for it. People care about me. And so that, uh, that conversation with people and learning about them is absolutely critical. We have some tools. We use personal assessments and we can learn how people make decisions and how they their empathy and various things like that and help coach them in a way that helps them uh, identify their skills, because a lot of people don't even recognize their own skills, and also to help them learn to work with people around them and work on things where they can best apply their, their skills. Now, if they have serious flaws to work on, then you can identify those two and help them w- work on those. And, and of course, there are people who really can't be fixed but that's that's a different issue yeah i was gonna, I was
1: gonna ask because even in that statement there was a good there's good inside of everyone you need to kind of draw it out how how what do you do when you come across people where it just doesn't seem to be any <laughs> any good inside of them where it seems to be they are either disruptive ego-centered, argumentative, values are not, alliance yours. there's so much stuff where he's like, do I really invest the time to try and find the good in this person? Or do you know when it is just to kind of just, yeah, I'm going to walk away from that. Right?
0: It's a critical question. I've done a fair amount of organization development and organizational change over the years, of Somervich in, in the book. Uh, and I, I say, well, it, when I go into an organization, I look for two things. One is, who are the hot nodes? Now, that's a that's a network term that says, who are the people where, at the center of communications that are really making, having an impact? The influences in the organization, another name. And the other side is, who are the black holes? The ones that are absorbing all the energy. You know, this is uh, like equivalent to astrology here, not astrology, astronomy. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, absorbing all the energy, dragging the organization down. If you want the quickest change, what do you do first? Get rid of the bad ones. And, and I've had managers say to me, I became a manager when I got rid of, you know, that bad employee. Uh, and then, of course, then you when you get real change, the first people you have to convince for the change are those people who are the hot nodes, who are the influencers. And they may not necessarily be the people who are high in the hierarchy, but the people who are most influential in the organization. I once in a while coach politicians, and I tell them that same story is gather around you the hot nodes and look for the people you have to influence and go after them, you know, try to develop relationships. And that relationship has to be built on trust, not coercion.
1: If you are enjoying listening to this episode, can you do me a huge favor? Follow the podcast. It really helps us grow and it tells the apps. It's the podcast worth listening to. You can do that in Apple Podcasts by clicking on those three dots in the top right of your app. Look out for the follow button and just click on it. If you're listening on Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. You can click on that, and you can follow that. We really appreciate you supporting everyday leadership. When I used to build and develop software and project management, it was one of the things that I used to be really, really critical is you find those people who are influential. And I love what you said where it's not always the people who have the hierarchical power that have the influence. If you can find the people who have the influence, explain the new system, why you want to do it, get them in an early prototype a pilot phase. Once they buy into it, it makes it so much easier to get everyone else on board. But if they don't buy into it, you're always going to hit a roadblock. And those who were like engineers and IT people, they never quite understood that. I'm like, no, there's a psychological to to this as well that you need to apply to it. So I kind of love that example.
0: That's right. An organization sense, those people are not always like me. You have to realize that they come in various attitudes and backgrounds. And you so don't expect everybody to be the person who's got your kind of personality it's critical that you have people who can look at things from a different point of view and to have that kind of influence and and that may be more more critical than ever that people who have a different style may be the most effective in the organization you're trying to change
1: how do you decide who you want to work with cuz you work with a select a few clients. and You got, like I said, politicians. You got organizations, consultancies. So you're very intentional around who you choose to give your time to. I'm curious as to do you have a like selection process or criteria? Is it a value matching thing? What is it that drives that?
0: Yeah, I don't have a checklist at all. I'm not a checklist kind of person. I it's it's conversations like this. Uh, you know, could uh, you know after after this conversation, then are you a person I'd be happy to work with? And, you know, so far I would say the answer is (laughs) yes. (laughs) And what can I learn by the questions you ask and by what you're curious about, uh, by the depth of your thinking, those kinds of things. And uh, if you were a potential client, what are you trying to accomplish? Mm -hmm, You know, the people part of the question is really critically important. We have a little exercise when we have a, I, I got an executive team together and we go through the people question and we do a little grid thing that says, who are the people who are the most productive? Who are the people who, are, who are, have the strong values? And we actually have them plot their key people on, on that. And when they are doing that, I can learn something about how they make those decisions. Are they balanced in their viewpoint? Are they uh, biased in the way they look at people? Those kinds of things. And so their decision process and just doing that little exercise is very telling to me and what kind of person they are. This company we did the survey with, their leadership and that team is all about the people. They, they are super competent. In their science, almost half of their staff is a bunch of PhD scientists, but they, they are really concerned about hiring the right people, developing them, and trying to do the right thing, as we would say. And that's, that's really important. And uh, that shows up in you know every decision they make. And it's all about what the leadership has, has tried to create. And so it's, you know, uh, and their CEO is just retiring. And uh, this is a guy that I admire because he's a person of strong values. And he injected that into this company. And the new CEO uh, is a scientist of some note, but he's top notch when it comes to caring about his people. And so that's the kind of person that's easy for me to relate to. I have another client who has grown a uh, technical company over the past 20 years, and is just stepping away as a CEO. And uh, you know, he's wrestling with the—I would I can't, wrestling's the wrong word—he's trying to decide exactly what do I do next because he's relatively young. And our conversations have revolved around what do you care most about? What's consistent with your principles? You've exhibited all these talents of building a team and a successful company. What does your inside guide tell you about what are the things you'd like to, to do that uh, you can do for the world? And take some time, though. It's, it's okay to go sit on a beach or you know, or go, or go drive a tractor on your farm or something like that for a while. <laughs> But uh, you know what, you, you have a lot to offer. And so uh, back to the question is, what am I called to do?
1: What is the answer for you? What are you called to do now? What is that imprint that you want to keep on having on the world and the work that you do?
0: My job is to try to help people find their role, so that find their, their purpose. And I look at it as leverage. If, if I help a CEO at, or a leader who has 200 people in the organization and that person can make some changes that uh, are important, it affects 200 people. Those people have families and those people are affecting others. And uh, so that's the way I look at my my leverage. Uh, the, the big wrestle I have personally is that if I look at it from you know, just without getting into politics, but there's a lot of turmoil in the world <laughs> here in the United States. What can I do? I don't buy the idea that, uh, just please give me a leader and I hope that person can fix it all. No, the question is what can each one of us do in a democracy to help our society and our country? Then, uh, Go in the right direction and take care of the people that we are concerned about what are the values that are important that i need to stand up for and how do i make an impact that's a struggle that's a very that's an important struggle i know if i you know when i was particularly a young politician i worked with recently that you know she I know her values. She's she's important. And so, what are the what are the important things that I can help her do that would affect her whole district? That's that's leverage. That's uh, that's trying to help help the people who are in the that district live a better life and uh, have a better uh, situation for their their families and their their culture. And that's, that's that's leverage. And so my, my question for myself is, how can I set the right example? How can I ask the right questions? How can I help the right people and accomplish those things? One of the um, examples that you talked about in your
1: book that I really wanted to kind of bring out in this conversation was you talked about when your career was going well, or things weren't going well at home. And the work that we do, we spend a lot of time both with men and women who are very career-driven, ambitious people. And a lot of times you have that separation between, oh, this is my professional life, gay, but then my personal life isn't going quite well. And I talk a lot about harmony. You are one person, yeah. you're not split between two. Mm-hmm. So you kind of need right. to have, and a lot of times you have issues in one, showing up as symptoms in the other one. So it's like, how do you get to bring that merge together? And then you start talking about that in your book around you went through that experience and obviously you started going through that whole process. I guess I'm curious, how was it for you coming to that realization that this area of my life is going really, really well, but this one isn't and I need to do something about it?
0: Well, it was, it was absolutely crucial. And uh, one of the things that when I broke up with my first wife, uh, I didn't have one person I could turn to and talk to, uh, and uh, you know I was that separated from my personal side. But one of the things I said to myself was that will never happen to me again, and so I now can now am honored to have a lot of close confidants uh, all, all over the world. I must say, but uh, she and I just developed in different different directions. And the, the way I've, I felt feel about it and look retrospective, I could have done a lot more by being more sensitive and letting her know what world I was in. But the the fact was that I knew something about what she was doing, but she didn't know much about what I was doing and the struggles I had and that sort of thing. Or, for that matter, who I was. And so I think that my... I don't call it my ambition. I call it my drive. And going back to what my grandmother said, that drive has been part of me. That's part of who I am. And and if uh, if the person doesn't understand who I am, that's a problem. And if I don't understand my partner, who she is, that's a problem. And we got to that point where I don't think we knew each other. And that's that was the how I explain what what happened, and uh, you know how alone can you feel if you are in a relationship where your partner doesn't know or respect who you are. And so uh, you know that drive that my, that came from my grandmother translates into my drive is not just raw ambition to be rich and high up in a job. But my ambition is to fulfill that dream of trying to help people. And so sh- shrinking me back to a smaller circle uh, is, would be, is pretty hard. <laughs> but that, that drive also, I think, uh, can blind me to what's going on around me. And, the, and other people close up may be hurting. And so how, if I'm out to help people, wait a minute, I have to also help those people who are close to me. What am I missing?
1: <laughs> so what I thought about is that lead, it's a polarity of leading self, leading others. And you need to be able to do, to do both. Because if not, you're never gonna be able to actually when you ask yourself this question, you're never going to fully step into one of either one until you kind of understand, okay, what's going on inside of me? How do I feel? How am I approaching things? Or that drive that I have inside of me? Okay, if that's how I, I am, then who else do I have around me who can understand that, who can relate to that, who I can share that with? Those are the kind of partners I need around me. If you don't know that element of yourself, you're always going to have a disparity or difference with whoever else you, you kind of bring into your world. And that's, well, that for me, I always call it that, that polarity of, okay, what's that third way? What's that middle ground of now I know who I am, I know what I think I need. How do I bring those two worlds together, which is then the full essence of who I am operating? in that.
0: Absolutely. And, and the other, other thing is, though, part of understanding ourselves is understanding our blind spots. What are the things we don't understand? What are the other things we need somebody else to help us understand? To try to find people have a different set of views and a set different style of being that help us understand that that different world, and uh, realizing that we have blind spots is part of the self awareness that I think is really hard to develop. You know, if if they're blind stop spots, how can we see it? <laughs> and the answer to that really is, you can only see it by working with all the people who are close that you understand and you care about, it, and that can tell you what you need to know and try to teach you and try to fill fulfill that part of your your life that uh, you maybe are missing, that you don't understand. And that's also true in, in choosing who do we work with. And, uh, you know, if, if we're, uh, you know, I go into a company and they're all, if the person is a, uh, uh, broad thinking strategist then where's the person who can get the work done or if you go into a company and there's person is a mechanic running it who's the thinker so those kind of complementary things are that's that's surface level but it, at the deeper level you know deep personal lives how can who are the people and who, where are the influences that help us understand more deeply what this life and our values are all about
1: I'm loving this conversation. I love things like get me thinking deeply. So <laughs> this is definitely worth it for sure. But <laughs> guess my own question that I was asked is: How do you define leadership?
0: Leadership is, first of all, leadership is building on your values and helping find a direction for yourself and the, an organization or team or whatever, whatever situation is that can help create this kind of change you think is necessary for the good of humanity. So the transformation idea is the transformation means things change. And what are the ideals that we're working for? Now, you know, that obviously has context to it because if I'm, you know, working with a small team, then I'm concerned about the team. But that team operates in a bigger environment. So how we understand that environment, well, that environment is uh, social or or you know having to do with with the company. I sort of stay away from simple ideas about what is leadership. You know, there uh, or the characteristics of a leader. And and so if I, you know, if I answer the question, what does leadership mean to me today? It means trying to help others create the change that they need in their organization, society, or the context that they are uh, living
1: in. I think uh, it's something that definitely comes out in the way that you, you talk and the way that you intentionally approach the work that you do, the organizations that you kind of work with. And if you listen to some of the things that you've kind of shared and the way that you're thinking, is re- definitely aligned to, to all of that, which for me is amazing because there's an authenticity there. I think it's very easy for times when people can say certain things. They're like, well, no, these are, this is a history, which is, which is in the book. So what was the one thing that, you could go back, check that book out, absolutely tap into it. In the show notes, you have the links for the book on hand on the shoulder, finding freedom. So that's going to be available to you. But you you share a lot of experiences as to who you are, how you're about, how you think, and that impact or shall I say how you describe leadership. And that's what makes it really, really real. It's easy, right, in this day and age, particularly to have a lot of, I guess what I call theoretical assumptions. <laughs> Without having the real lived experience, that shows well. This is it, and this is the good and the bad. It's not just all of that. It's not sugar coated whatsoever. So that that definitely comes through, and it's something I've, I've appreciated, and I really really enjoyed this conversation. So
0: thank you very much. Well, I have as well. Thank you, thank you so much, and uh, I hope we have a time to talk again sometime because I'd like to learn more about you. We're <laughs> but I but I've learned a lot because of the way you uh, ask questions.
1: I appreciate that. I'm yeah. sure we, we can make that happen for sure. This is everyday leadership. And we'll see you soon. Here's a quick preview of who we got coming up for next week's episode. Make sure you're following the show so you don't miss out on this amazing guest. I remember my mom specifically saying, "Like you've got all of these qualifications. Imagine how much money you could get if you went and got a job." Why do you go and get a job? (laughs) Like, I don't want a job. One thing I do during the week is I go for a run. And most days after each run, I upload a video on LinkedIn, only about two or three minutes. So if you wanna get a little bit-sized information as to what's going on in my head after that run, check me out on LinkedIn. Just type in my name, S-O-P-E-A-G-B-E-L-U-S-I and you'll find me and you can tap into some more content outside of everyday leadership.